I see a need for us to humanize healthcare. I, I really appreciate this podcast and this platform because the more we can talk about current state and be real and honest with each other, the better. We had to get into sort of a, a reaction mode with COVID and address priorities as they came up. And, you know, I think it led us into a place where we were more transactional with each other, more transactional with our patients. Welcome to Humanizing Healthcare, where we talk with innovators and thought leaders who are working to make healthcare experiences more compassionate and rewarding for all. Our host is Chris Malone, founder of Fidelum Health and author of the award-winning book, The Human Brand, how we relate to people, products, and companies. Hi, I'm Chris Malone, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be talking with Dwight McBee, Clinical Health Equity and Chief Patient Experience Officer at Jefferson Health. Welcome to the program, Dwight. Thanks for having me, Chris. Great to be here. So to get us started, Dwight, you seem to have an action-packed job title. Can you please tell us a little bit about your role at Jefferson Health? Sure. Uh, So I'm the uh, Executive Vice President, Chief Experience Officer here for Jefferson Health. I have been at Jefferson for about two and a half years now, and my role is really to set the high-level strategic priorities around advancing our patient and family-centered care experience strategies, as well as to partner with our organization to advance our priorities and advancing health equity uh, priorities as well. And so it's a complex role. It's one of those roles that has evolved over time. Like many experienced officers across the country, we sort of serve as the Swiss army knife of the organization and fit many of the roles that are needed to uh, advance our priorities. So that's a a little bit about my role here. I've got a, a nursing background as well. Um, I've been in healthcare for about 23 or so years. And so half of my career was spent in nursing and the other half has been in leading uh, patient experience. So is there a story you can share with us about how you chose a career in healthcare? There are so many uh, stories, uh, Chris. You know, I think like many of your audience, you know, life experiences sort of guide us along our career journey. Uh, I grew up in Southern New Jersey, one of the few Black families in the community. And so we sort of clustered as Black families together. And we learned a lot about you know, community and mentorship. And, you know, I grew up at a time where um, you were just as afraid of your friend's parents as you were of your own. Um, but all of that sort of uh, informed me. And my heart of service really came from navigating healthcare with my sister who had uh, sickle cell anemia growing up. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about uh, pain and how pain is subjective and how uh, over time we can desensitize ourselves in the healthcare system to the needs of some of our patients. And so, yeah, so my journey started with my sister with sickle cell anemia. She eventually passed away, but um, learned a lot about being her support person. You know, examples of uh, sort of what led me into the healthcare space uh, were uh, there were times where my sister would call the house because the nurses weren't answering the call bell when she was in pain. And we would have to call the nurse's station, get their attention to go in to see my sister. So little experiences like that sort of informed uh, me along the way. That's what got me into nursing and sort of inspired by her passing away. And later on, my my life just so happened to get a little bit more complex in, in the birth of my daughter, Sienna, who has Rett syndrome which is a condition that largely impacts girls. It's a spontaneous genetic mutation and leaves girls unable to speak and use their hands. And and so um, my wife and I uh, are constantly navigating healthcare today 
And, um, you know, I learned a lot through my journey with my daughter about what makes an experience a differentiated experience. What are the things that build trust? And, you know, when clinicians come in and they engage my daughter and they're, they're trying to make eye contact and communicate with her before they engage with us as her family, it, it means a lot. It, it, should, it demonstrates a lot of empathy. And, you know, it's one of the, the items that we look for when we're looking to build a relationship with a care team. So those are some of the experiences that have uh, guided me along the way. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands uh, more uh, experiences that have brought me to where I am today. But I've had um, you know, my journey has led me in, in nursing leadership and various roles there. And I think nurses have a unique perspective on the world, uh, thinking about holistically where people come from and how we can meet needs outside of the specific clinical encounter to support them differently. Wow. It seems like you bring a much more intensive lived experience with healthcare, both growing up and with your own family than, than most of us have the benefit of. And so I'm sure that provides wow. a lot of great insight in your work. It sure does. I mean, I, I think we all have that. We all have our lived experiences and I'm encouraged to lean into all aspects of what we've lived through. Uh, even the tough things that we've had to live through because um, we're certainly not alone. And um you know, we have more in common than we we realize. Absolutely. So over the past year, it seems like there's a growing interest in this idea that healthcare needs to become more human. In your view, does healthcare, given your experience and everything you've seen, need to become human or more so? Or and if so, what what do you think has brought us to that need? Yeah, I see a need for us to humanize healthcare. I, I really appreciate sort of this podcast and this platform. Because the more we can talk about current state and be real and honest with each other, the better. I think the last three and a half years with COVID, you know, we've gotten away from a lot of the things that we were looking to solve in healthcare. And, uh, you know, we had to get into sort of a, a reaction mode with COVID and address uh, priorities as they came up. And we were always solving problems throughout the COVID crisis. And, you know, I think it led us into a place where we were more transactional with each other, uh, more transactional with our patients. I know um, in my role, one hour meetings turned into 15 minute meetings, right? And so even in, in that, um, you know, just becoming very uh, transactional in our ways. And, you know, I think that has translated to the bedside as well. I, I think our, our staff have really lived through a pretty challenging time. And so coming out of this now and thinking about where we need to go, the best path forward is to get back to what matters most to our patients, to each other, which is uh, to see the humanity in one another. And so I, I do see a need for us to focus on humanizing the experience. We shouldn't have to, frankly. Uh, we all got into this wanting to be human and wanting to genuinely care for another. But the way in which we've had to navigate the challenges of late, you know, we need this reminder. So uh, agree with the, the sentiment that humanizing healthcare is, is a priority today. Yeah, you said something that really struck me. And I think it's the notion that it, it becomes more transactional, particularly in the last few years, as volumes were overwhelming acute care facilities and so forth. And I think it's a combination of COVID, technology, automation, yeah. telehealth, remote everything, that our lives are becoming more transactional. And what that does is it frays the relationships that we would otherwise build with people that ensure that we see them as people or, or humans first rather than transactions. 
Yeah. Think about, you know, just how Zoom has changed our interactions with one another. Think about the social media platforms that some of us have. Some of us are trying to uh, move farther away from. But, you know, all of these things have gotten in the way of uh, what has historically been the relationships we've had with one another. And so if we do nothing, we continue down this course of transactional relationships. But um, I think everyone's here because we realize uh, we want to do something different. And um, we recognize that, you know, humanizing not only healthcare, but beyond is one of the key ways that we get out of the place that we're in. Absolutely. Where do you think clinical health equity fits into the picture? Do you think that removing some of the barriers that exist to more equitable health could also result in more human experiences as well? Or is it a different topic in your view? No, I think it's right in line. Uh, You know, when we think about health equity, you know, and going back to my comments about seeing the whole person, one of the things that we think about with health equity is understanding that um, we're not all coming from the same place. And part of our responsibility in healthcare is understanding what is that place you're coming from. Uh, When we think about health-related social needs, for example, we know that there are things within the external environment that are predictors for your health outcomes. And so how can we deliver better service to you with an understanding of how, you know, how the environment has informed your decision-making, how the environment has really patterned your health behaviors. And so health equity is central to humanizing experience because it is part of us as humans. It is influential over our health decisions, over our family decisions, and and over our well-being as a whole. And so there is a strong connection. I think health systems are getting closer to that understanding that we need to, you know, screen and and be ready to address uh, health-related social needs when we have the opportunity to do so. I know Jefferson Health has taken um, a serious step forward in understanding those needs and connecting our patients to the necessary resources to address when there's a gap in in meeting those needs. And so um, it is part of our responsibility, I I see it in healthcare, to have that holistic approach to our patient care and uh, equity is is central to the, the human experience we're all trying to deliver. I would agree. So let's talk a little bit about frontline caregivers and clinicians. Many organizations are struggling with staffing levels, engagement, and retention. How does health equity contribute to a more fulfilling and perhaps sustainable experiences for those providing care as well as those receiving it? Yeah, I I immediately think of moral distress. You know, our teams have seen a lot of need, frankly. You know, you think about your emergency department teams or your ICU teams, and we tend to see a lot of the same patients, the same individuals, or the same types of patients coming in. And, you know, if you are not able to affect change with that individual or break the cycle, that contributes to burnout, that contributes to compassion fatigue, you start to detach. And, you know, we talked about, you know, the whole transactional uh, issue we're all dealing with. And so, All of these things play into retention. It plays into people entering into the healthcare workforce. And, you know, we as health systems need to recognize that we can do something about it. It starts with, you know, understanding where patients are at and and making sure that our clinicians and our teams that are providing care have an ability to affect change, whether it's picking up the phone and getting help for someone when they needed it or giving them the resources to hand to someone to say, hey, listen, you know, I know you have a a housing need. Here's something that you can do when you leave here. But it's little things like that that we need to be focused on to mitigate against the impact that we're starting to see with a lot of the challenges in the external environment. Um, So there is absolutely a health equity 
component to the retention and the workforce issues that we're, we're working so hard to address in many other ways. It must be very hard and demoralizing for people to see the gaps that exist and you know the same people kind of struggling over and over. On a related note, recently it seems there was a story in the news about how Black patients across the country had been waiting substantially longer for kidney transplants due to the traditional clinical practice of including race as a factor in estimating kidney function. Now, I understand that Jefferson's transplant industry is a leader in making change into its testing protocols to eliminate this disparity. I was wondering if you could tell us more about this. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. You know, talking about moral distress and not being able to affect change, you know, for for years, the healthcare uh, industry has included race as a factor in some of our clinical decision-making tools. And there was a, a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020 that highlighted race in medicine. And essentially, you know, race can either contribute to improving healthcare or it contribute to a worsening condition. And, um, you know, Jefferson Health has uh, really taken a leading role in understanding uh, where race is being used in decision-making and whether or not it is contributing to harm and widening that that equity gap. And um, one of the areas, and I know many of our organizations have taken on the estimated GFR, uh, kidney function evaluation. And what we found is when we went back and removed race and used a race neutral modifier, more black patients were able to be uh, added to our wait list. And uh, in fact, as of today, I believe the number is now seven patients have now received a kidney transplant who would have not otherwise qualified for a kidney transplant. So these are seven lives that have been impacted um, by the evaluation of the effectiveness of using race in our decision-making tools. And so Jefferson's on a journey to go further here. Um, We're looking at several of our clinical specialties, pulmonology, cardiology. These are areas where historically race has been used to determine risk for various patients. And, you know, in some cases it's, it's perfectly appropriate and uh, leads to appropriate care decisions. And in other places, there's still a question. And where there is a question or there could potentially be harm, we're looking to eliminate the use. And so we're not alone in this. Um, We have many partners. I think there's regional collaborative working on this. And and so I certainly want to recognize that there's a lot of great people, much smarter than me, working on uh, how uh, race can be used. But I think in general, we recognize that race is a, a social construct And it's not a a great predictor of genetic differences between populations. And so what is that better variable? Is it health-related social needs? Is it zip code? Is it other, you know, payer mix? So we've got to think about the variables we're using for our clinical decisions and whether or not they're contributing to equitable outcomes. Uh, Absolutely. And what you just described was a, a really important change in process and policy. I'm wondering from what you've seen so far, what advice could you offer to healthcare professionals on how to go about kind of finding and implementing systemic changes to policies and processes that could positively impact clinical health equity? Yeah, I think um, it requires courage. <laughs> so core requirement number one, courage. You know, these are not easy decisions that organizations will have to make. I mean, we're challenging historical norms. And so I would say lead with data. 
Um, that's a great starting place. Uh, we all are sitting on quality outcomes and we can all work with our teams to segment that data by whatever variable we find is important. I would say your highly protocolized areas, you know, areas where you know care should not deviate, there should not be a variation in care. I think those are the the places that I would look if I'm looking to determine whether or not I've got an equitable care process. But at the end of the day, there's likely going to be some difference. And when you do have that difference, I think the data supports taking action. I think once you get the right information surfaced in front of the right people, inherently, we want to do good. And inherently, organizations enter into healthcare to you know make a difference in people's lives. And so I think the hard work is starting, frankly, and it, it requires courage to get started. But once we get past that hurdle, we use data, we focus on protocolized care areas. I think the rest of it starts to gather momentum and, and can lead to positive change. Absolutely. Now, speaking of data, there's been a lot of news lately, obviously, about artificial intelligence since the release of chat GPT and GPT-4, including the impact that they may have on healthcare. I'm wondering what, given you've seen so far, do you think there may be a role for artificial intelligence in streamlining care delivery models or reducing administrative burdens for frontline caregivers or how that might play into health equity as well? Oh, my gosh. We can't avoid it, Chris. No one here can avoid what is coming? I don't know. You're about as old as I am. So you remember the first cell phones? They were these you know, big blocks that you had on your shoulder. They were like 100 pounds or something. That's right. I feel like we're at that stage with, with AI. It's clunky. It has a couple of use cases. It's not really, you know, portable very, you know, it's it's got its challenges, right? But we cannot avoid what's coming. And so, you know, we're starting to see some dribs and drabs of how AI can help create greater efficiencies within our work streams. We do have a an AI center of excellence that's led by our, our fantastic team here. We're taking a look at how artificial intelligence can help us get ahead of poor outcomes or, or issues that result from our care delivery processes. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that we're, it's the great eventuality. How are you all using it today? It will not look like uh, how you're going to use it in, in five years from now. And so we're leaning in on it. I think one of the great ways we can think about AI to improve experiences is to think about those things that are rote, mundane tasks that people are doing. You know, we've got these highly trained clinicians and nurses, and they're spending time looking through a, a medical record to get all the information together so they can hand it off to the next shift that's coming in, right? Well, that's just something that a computer can do faster, better, and more efficiently than any one of us could ever do. And it shifts some of that time and that capacity back to the caregiver so that we can spend more time with our patients, so that we can make these human connections with people. And so that is the hope is that as we spend more time getting comfortable with AI and large language models and chat GPT, that we'll find ways to use it so that we can get people back to the business, right? The, the core work that we all signed up for, but um, it will be disruptive. I know that there are some roles that are more exposed than others, but I, I, I see a lot of hope in where we're headed and uh, certainly uh, I'm leaning in on it. Yeah. 
your comment about the documentation of patient condition as part of the handoff between shifts reminds me of a recent article I saw, something that was in the news that talked about how in kind of a test of AI versus human physicians in writing correspondence with patients, that artificial intelligence had more compassion and more empathy and things of that nature, which you know made sense to me in a certain context. It's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison because to your point, humans have limited time and capacity to write that documentation where artificial intelligence essentially has unlimited resources to do that. And so of course there would be more timely, thoughtful writing in there. And so that would be a great example of something you could kind of perhaps even do better more efficiently and and reduce the burden on the administrator. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're at the very beginning and, you know, there's really no limit to, to how we can um, leverage AI to, deliver better care and be more human in what we do. So I, I just simply say we can't avoid it. Let's not avoid it. Let's collectively lean in and help one another. I think, you know, we use the communities that we have to share ideas and make the systems work better for all of us. You know, so I I do take that approach and philosophically think that a lot of people sort of default because it's new. It's bad. Um, you know, my daughters used to watch this show, uh, The Crudes, where uh, these cavemen, you know, they're afraid of anything new. And the daughter brings back this seashell and it's new and they just destroy the seashell because it's just new. It's new. This is not that. I think we need to lean in here and and, you know, leverage it to the best of its ability and share with others when we learn something good. And do you think that the more encouraging or the applications of artificial intelligence that you are more enthusiastic about, are they more on the clinical side or are they also on the experiential side or on the administrative side? What are some of the specific ones that you have found interesting and, and you think are promising? I think there it's all of that, right? I, I, gosh, it just touches everything. I mean, I, I'm slanted toward experience because I think we all are working really hard. And if there's anything that can make our jobs a little bit easier, you know, understanding data, understanding, you know, what our patients are really saying, I think those are ways that make our jobs a lot easier and we can get right back to the business, like I said. But I I think it's really going to touch everything. I think clinically, we're all going to be operating with less resource. It's just, you know, the future of healthcare is is, is really going to be challenging for us. And so how do we deliver high quality care? in an environment of limited resources. And I think AI can help bridge that gap. And so do we need as many people reading MRI studies? You know, maybe AI can help support that. And there's many other clinical paths that we can go down. But I think essentially, it'll be a support to us rather than a detriment to our work. And if you think about it from kind of your experience as an intensive care nurse, do you imagine that greater use of automated communication or artificial intelligence enabled communication with patients, is that going to help us make relationships stronger or is there a potential downside of that becoming more transactional or, you know, how do you imagine, you know, that will impact those relationships? I think there's going to be a learning curve. I think, yeah, we run the risk at the early years here and it being clunky and kind of in the way. And, you know, you see some of the chat bots that are out there and, you know, you sometimes get a call or you get an email, you know, this is AI. I'm like, oh, great. I'm not talking to a human right now, but I think we're going to cross that threshold and get to a place where it's indistinguishable and we are better operators of those systems. And I think it will lead to a more humanistic approach to healthcare. But we've got a couple of rough years ahead of us. And I think AI will be fine. I think it's us trying to use it and fit it into the right thing. I think that's where we're going to have some learning uh, to go through. But um, I think it'll smooth out in the end. Probably like the early days of the internet and e-commerce, right? 
Right? Yeah, a lot yeah. of change and a lot of unforeseen consequences. Oh, yeah. So, hey, let's go to some questions from the audience. We've got a number of come in. Dr. Helen Reese asks, what are your thoughts about implementing a patient code of conduct? Many health providers of color have been victims of frank, racist, and sexist comments that are very challenging. Yeah, Helen, great to hear from you. And uh, I do think we need to be very clear and set very clear expectations and have a zero tolerance policy for behaviors that are threatening our workforces are our greatest asset. We cannot do what we do without them being here. And we're in a very divided country right now. And so we're seeing any manner of behaviors manifest within our clinical delivery areas. And so, yes, I think there's a need for us to be clear and to have a full support for our team so that they have the psychological safety to show up and deliver the care that we need them to deliver. And so where we have any gaps in that, we need to shore them up. Where we haven't looked at our behavioral expectations for patients and families, we need to relook at them. The environment outside is certainly spilling over into the insights of our care settings, and we cannot ignore that. And so um, I'm in full agreement that um, you know that's a priority for us, and, and I'm sure it's a priority for others. Great. Also, a question from Jennifer Moshe. Your perspective on humanizing healthcare for patients and family members is so powerful. Can you speak for a moment about Jefferson's initiatives for humanizing healthcare for providers and staff to alleviate burnout? I know we talked a little bit about this, but I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Yeah, I think the more that we can, you know, share the voices of our patients, the better. Jefferson has leaned in on engaging patients as advisors. And I know you've all done this work. And this is work that Bev Johnson and the Institute for Patient and Family Center Care have led for a number of years. And COVID sort of disrupted some of that. We're leaning back in on that. And and so for our patients that have had experiences with Jefferson, we we train them, we onboard them, and then we bring them back and they share their own stories. And there's nothing like a patient standing in front of a room of our doctors and nurses and say, this happened to me in your unit. And I'd like to be a part of the change that exists in this department. And so I think those are ways that we can bring a real face and any experienced leader on the call, you know, we sit on all of these opportunities to get our patient's voice heard within those clinical settings. And the more we can do that, the more we humanize the experience. You know, you can't run from a patient when they're in the room. You can't run from them when they're sitting at the table with you. And it's amazing how you the conversation changes. The words we use change. The most hardened doctors, the most battle-ready ER nurses, everyone changes when a patient's in the room. And I know it's sort of old school and foundational, but we have gotten away from that and we've got to get back to it. And it takes work. It takes real work to get patients comfortable and prepared it's not always going to go right. And we're learning those lessons as well, but we're doing that at our local hospitals and we're doing that across our enterprise as well. And uh, I think it's core work for patient and family center care. Excellent. A question from Dr. Mike Woodruff. It seems that Jefferson is giving high priority to person and family centered care. What advice do you have for others working to put focus and attention to this work in their organization? Yeah, I think it's more of what I, I shared. I'm a big believer in human-centered design, as many of you are as well. And so, you know, anything we're working on, we first and foremost get our patients' perspectives, but then, you know, we get our, our clinicians' perspectives and we look at the processes from every angle. We look at the care journey. We don't just look at the acute care experience. We don't look at that discrete encounter. You know, what were the steps before 
they got to the acute care encounter? What were the opportunities we had to communicate differently? And really journey mapping our steps so that when we're looking to solve one problem, we're looking at everything in context. And I would encourage each one of you to think about beyond that discrete experience you're trying to solve and what were some of the steps that could have been put in place before that encounter or what are some of the steps afterward that can sort of smooth it out and when we all become human-centered designers i think we're all patient and family-centered care leaders excellent one last question from tony prince what has your ai center of excellence observed what have you been trialing? Have you observed anything with metrics of improvement related to time or capacity? How is the center evaluating between solutions? Any standards for evaluating that kind of thing? First and foremost, we had to create a foundation. So um, the Center for AI um, is working on. So let me just start by saying the cat's out of the bag, right? Chat GPT happened. <laughs> it's out there. There's nothing we can pull back from. So we recognize, number one, that people are using that within our health system and we needed to create rules of engagement. And so the Center of AI was started with setting up real rules around what we should use, what, what shouldn't we use. For example, um, we recognize that Chat GPT, for example, is in the public domain. So anything you put within ChatGPT is out there. So I'm not sure how many people know that. And so, you know, we really needed to sort of make sure that that message was really clear. We are looking at our EMR and we're looking at variability uh, as a whole and how we can reduce variability where appropriate. And so, you know, we're looking at things like variability and our ORs and, and procedural areas are important areas for us to make sure we've got some control over and consistency over. So um, so looking at some of that um Obviously, I think the question mentioned time and uh, time spent doing things. And I think that's another powerful area where AI can look at how um, our doctors are documenting and which which doctors are documenting after hours and whether or not we need to help support differently in certain areas. And so, you know, the the Center for AI is is looking at a lot of different things pointed toward organizational priorities. But we we see the EMR as a sort of a hub. It's an operating system in and of itself. It, you know, there's millions of data points in there. And one of the things that AI has shown proficiency with is quickly analyzing large data sets and, and churning out insightful feedback for us to take action on. All very good. Very interesting stuff we could talk about for a long time. I have just one final question for you. Do you have a favorite quote you can share with us and tell us a little <laughs> bit why it's your favorite? Well, I am a man of faith, Chris, and I don't want to, you know, take you away, but it's my belief, you know, Christian belief. So I, I truly believe in being still. There's a proverb that says, be still and know that I am God. And even if you're not a Christian, being still is an important exercise for all of us is to, you know, slow down every once in a while and understand that um, sometimes uh, self-care is more important than any problem you're trying to solve right in front of you. We're all moving at a lightning pace right now, and it's really important that we kind of take stock uh, every once in a while. There's a reason why our workforce issues are what they are. Um, we're moving really fast, and our and our teams are feeling it. And I think the more that we as leaders can slow down, do some self-reflection, understand the experience others are having of us, I think those are the reasons why that resonates with me. 
Well, that's really powerful advice. I think not only in the context of healthcare, but our world in general has been growing in anxiety and stress, you know, in every field, whether it's remote work or COVID or digital technology or social media, you name it. Those relationships and that stillness has been frayed. So I think that's really great advice to share with us. Sure. Dwight, I can't thank you enough for your time and insight today. It's really been inspiring to hear about all the new things that you're implementing at Jefferson. We look forward to hearing new innovations from you and your team in the future. To our listeners today, thank you for joining us as well. We hope you found our discussion informative and inspiring. And be sure to join us for our next Humanizing Healthcare discussion. We'll be talking with Barb Bobula, Vice President of Patient Experience, and Joy Peters, Chief Nursing Officer at Allegheny Health Network. And we'll be discussing how they are elevating both patient experiences and caregiver engagement in their emergency departments. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanizing Healthcare, please give it a rating, share it with others, and follow us at Fidelum Health on LinkedIn. And make sure you join us next time as we share more insights from another inspiring healthcare leader and innovator.